2: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. With me is Feudal Fromagier and star of this week's TLS. Yes, she's in this week's TLS as well as editing it, Thea Lenaduzi. Thea, hello. Hello.
3: Are you
2: feeling festive?
3: Uh, no. No,
2: no, God, no! I, I, I despair. Give me some at time. I was in, at least uh, another two and a half. Weeks. I can't. Christmas music is. I was in Starbucks the other day, and I was saying to the people there, they have to stand there for like three and a half mm-hmm. weeks with awful Christmas music. I just. I was can trying you to,
3: think of any any good Christmas songs? No. I can only think of one.
2: You're going to say the, the
3: the Pogues and Kirsten yeah, Call. Yeah, 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 I mean that's it. That's the only around. one there, isn't. That it? is the only one.
2: This woman said she liked Mariah Carey. Oh, I hate that song so much. I mean, <laughs> What's the song called, The Mariah Carey song? Well, she did a whole Christmas album. Oh, Matt, Matt the producer just leapt in there. We, you know, we talk, we talk about literature. High, high in literature, and he's as silent as the grave. I mentioned Mariah Carey once, and it just pings in my ear. All I want for Christmas. I heard a fact about that. Would you like to hear the fact about it? She earns half a million dollars every year from the royalties for that, just in Christmas time. God. So that was a that. Yeah, that that paid off for didn't it? I
3: think it I think it did, yeah. There
2: you go. High low culture, a bit of everything here. Remember if you want to subscribe to the TLS, there's no more I carry this week, but you know, it's don't really rule it out. Time. Yeah, exactly. Google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer code section, you can get six issues for six pounds. Do review us on iTunes too. And this week, yes, my very special, super high profile guest is Thea. She's written a wonderful lead piece on the collected writings of Elizabeth Hardwick, a woman perhaps wrongly known as the wife of poet Robert Lowell, but also a critic, essayist and novelist in her own right. Thea will tell us all about her. Historian Susanna Lipskin will be talking about her fascinating research into the records of French consistory courts in which moral crimes were addressed using the punishment of public shaming. And how healthy is the poetry pamphlet business? One of our poetry critics, Leif Arbuthnot, will be in the studio to tell us about the state of the game having been a judge on the Michael Marx Awards, which celebrates this peculiar area of literary publishing. Elizabeth Hardwick died 10 years ago this month, leaving a legacy perhaps most firmly in the world of literary criticism and book reviewing. In 1959, she had disconcerted an entire industry with her piece The Decline of Book Reviewing, in which she scorned the cosiness of the literary establishment. She said this, Sweet, bland commendations fall everywhere upon the scene. A universal, if somewhat lobotomized, accommodation reigns. A book is born into a puddle of treacle. The brine of hostile criticism is only a memory." See, I'm rather fond of the well written hatchet job, that salty tang of the appalled review, the genuine storm of merit to disapproval. So I find myself already warming to Elizabeth Hardwick. Thea, of course, is not so mean-spirited when she reviews Hardwick's collected essays. While Hardwick may be, as Daryl Pinckney avers, a writer's writer, she was always far more outwardly inclined than all that, interested in how we tell the stories of our lives and the lives of others. She had an authorial presence that was, in the end, wonderfully embracing, as Thea puts it, an I that becomes them becomes us. So, Thea, Hooray! <laughs> You can tell us more. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Does this feel awkward?
3: It does. I feel like I should have gone out for an outfit change or
2: something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You should have put an, put another hat on. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about Elizabeth Hardwick. Uh, what 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 is she known for, and what should she be known for?
3: She was well. I mean, let's start with where she where she was born and and sort of how she came to be what she was. I suppose she was born in 1916 in Kentucky. Her father was uh, in the plumbing trade. Her mother was very often pregnant. And then she decided that she wanted to go to New York to make something of herself. Uh, So she went to Columbia and she started studying the metaphysical poets because that was, as she put it, the trendy thing to do. And then she dropped out of that. She thought that that was all about scholarship and scholarship was not about making oneself interesting, about communicating in an interesting way and so on. Um, And so then she started writing novels uh, and it was when she wrote her first novel, The Ghostly Lover, in 1945, that she came to the attention of Philip Rav. Now, Philip Rav was the uh, founding editor of Partisan Review. And so what followed was a meeting with him, during which he said, you know, I like what you do, write for me. Um, And so she started to review novels and and, uh, write other criticism. Uh, And and everything followed from there really and she so you made a name a, and she you made, could make a living doing that you could, could make you? a living doing Unlike that now. Um, exactly <laughs> you could make a living doing that um, and and she did a lot of it she uh, made a name for herself writing these you know quick and uh, witty and insightful and sharp pieces uh, she fell in with the right coterie um friend became friends with mary mccarthy Hannah Arendt, um later Robert Lowell, Edmund Wilson and all of that set. So she was one of the bright young things um, and, as I said, went on to found the NYRB and continued to do all of that. As a novelist, she's not very well known. Is she
2: a good novelist? Do you like her novels?
3: Um, She only wrote three uh, and they were very very spaced out. So the first one was The Ghostly Lover uh, in 1945 and then A Simple Truth came in 55 followed by Sleepless Nights in 79. So that gives you a sense of the difficulty for her. Writing fiction was hard. She really struggled with it and you see that in in, in interviews. Uh, there's In particular, there's the interview in the Paris Review where she basically says the first line of the novel and every line after that is difficult she doesn't know if she's going to pull it off because it's very and rare so to she... find someone
2: who's a crit, who's firstly a critic who can then write novel. I mean James Woods being a modern example yeah. you know he's got a novel coming out I think but has never really managed to to, to become a novelist yeah. because he's so well regarded as a critic and if she spends her life skewering the fiction of others is, is, it, is that the reason novel writing was so hard do you think?
3: I don't think so I think I don't think it was so much that I think it was more a case of not knowing where she stood in the fiction she knew where she stood when she was writing about other people's writing but she found she basically her life her, her life's work was to find a way of placing the I in whatever writing she was doing the the, the self in whatever writing she was doing without it intruding or uh, or becoming specifically about the person who's writing the piece the whole thing is just this really delicate and sophisticated balance um and that, you know, that goes from her fiction. Uh, she wrote a lot of short stories as well. And progressively you can see her kind of owning herself and owning her, her critical voice. I hate, I hate that expression, but that's what you see across her oeuvre.
2: How much should Robert Lowell fe- feature in, in this story? I was looking at the Independence obituary when it was a newspaper rather than a clickbait site of tat, which it is now. But its headline was this. Writer, co-founder of the New York Review of Books and long-suffering wife of Robert Lowell. Is that a fair writer first founder of the NYRB and long suffering wife of Robert Lowell third? Is that a fair summary? Do you think of of
3: well? I mean, they've missed the. I mean, they've missed the kind of the critical heart out of it in in a way. I mean, writer as a as a an epithet is is sort of throwaway. Everyone, everyone's a writer. It doesn't really tell us how important a writer she was and she is. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more. She is an incredibly important writer the place of Robert Lowell is yeah of course he's got to be there it's it's essential and it and and he played a very important role in making her write the way she wrote and what she what she chose to write about in part because you know he was the poet who 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 brought us confessional poetry in its in its big form you know that's he, he
2: used, I mean, I was reading that he used lines of her letters without consent in his. Yeah, and duties. the
3: dolphin, and went yeah. on to win a Pulitzer Prize for it.
2: <laughs> and and how did she feel about that?
3: Very very hurt, and um, so that that was following their separation in 1970. So I should say, I mean, Robert Lowell, yes, important because of the confessional aspect and the fact that yes, he he did take her letters uh, and use them in his poet, poetry, changing them as well, not just taking them verbatim, which was almost the the bigger betrayal there Um, but he also uh, he also drove her to focus on the relationships between writers and couples and all of that sort of stuff so that's what made her interested I think in in literary couples through history so the way she writes about Thomas and Jane Carnot, Carlisle and all of all of this but
2: there's a great line about that she wrote. They, this is about Thomas and Jane Carlyle. They were, first of all, persons who drifted in and out of unhappiness, often within the course of a single day. And people say that's possibly a, an autobiographical remark. Oh, yeah, well.
3: I mean, it's, it's gen- that, that essay there is generally taken as one of her more autobiographical pieces. And, you know, she said herself, you can't write about the lives of others without leaving a trace of yourself. And the fact of Robert Lowell's existence, of his marriage to her, the result of that was that, yes, they went through cycles. Every year, roughly before Christmas, he would have a manic episode, I think usually immediately preceding or uh, following uh, infidelity. Uh, he would usually be sectioned. She would uh, stand by him, take him reading when he was in the ward. So and, it wasn't a, ha- so, do you think it was a happy Do you think
2: it was a happy life?
3: On her account, it was. That, I mean, that's what I say in my pieces that it's it's a relationship that one, as an outsider, can't possibly understand. They had their own system, whatever that was. Yeah. Um. And, you know, the fact you you would think, okay, so so someone has taken letters that I wrote to him after he uh, left me for the arms of another younger woman. Um. And he has twisted them, he's altered them, and he's published them as poetry as part of his poems that have gone on to win a Pulitzer Prize. You think a, it would be pretty hard oh, to come back from? It's that. a betrayal
2: upon a betrayal. It's really. a betrayal
3: upon a betrayal, and yet. Um they, you know, they got back together that he, well, almost in that uh, she agreed to take him back. And then he died in the taxi on his way from the airport back to the flat that they had once shared and where she still lived. Um, so he died in the cab outside, um, apparently clutching a portrait of his third wife, uh, Lady Caroline Blackwood, which would have been worth some money um, <laughs> because astonished. of who she was. And... It's a fascinating thing Uh, and everybody told Lowell at the time. Adrienne Rich, who was a mutual friend, the poet, and Elizabeth Bishop, again a mutual friend but much more Lowell's than than Hardwick, said art just isn't worth that much. And, you know, in part that was because she'd already gone off confessional poetry anyway and just found it annoying that people were writing about, you know, their mothers and their fathers and their sex lives all the time. But yes. But what what I don't want to do is talk too much about well, no, Lowell and all of that. No, because
2: there's, there's bits that are fascinating about the story. But I mean, I, I was struck by I never I'd never read the decline of book reviewing. So let's talk about her writing because I read the mm-hmm. essay after you mentioned it. Uh, how did that go down? And did that actually make a change? Because she, she she founds that she helps to found the NYRB soon after that. Really, sort of two or three years after that. This decline of book reviewing is basically saying it's filled with log rolling and treacly nonsense. It needs to be more um, intellectually credible mm-hmm. did she change anything?
3: She absolutely did I mean yeah so she wrote The Decline of Book Reviewing in 1959 and that was published in Harper's where Robert Silvers was was then an editor and you know that was a, a rejection of, of as you said the kind of the anodyne treacly book review that didn't really didn't make anyone feel anything really it was just basically summaries maybe an odd you know little quote to enliven things uh something that will be familiar to most most readers these days of of kind of the you know weekend supplements um
2: but not the tls but not the tls
3: well exactly and you know that is in part her legacy so 1963 there was the newspaper strike in the printer strike in new york and silvers hardwick and barbara epstein got together and said, look, well, you know, we've been saying for years that that kind of naff little review uh, that doesn't really tell, tell anyone anything or excite anyone or make anyone really realise that books are vitally important and intellectual discussion is vitally important because it is so enslaved to adverts from publishers. Now's our chance to do something about it. And so then they set up the NYRB and and everything follows really. And so that became a natural place for Hardwick because it was almost like the dream relationship, really, between an editor and a writer. Her friends' editors, Robert Silvers, could say, why don't you write a piece on such and such a thing? Or she could say to him, mm, I've got this this kernel of an idea, and he'll say, go away and do it. And then it, it gave her a freedom to write. And, and, and an did outlet. she
2: use that platform? What did she use that platform for? I mean, did she All bring... Attention upon up-and-coming writers. Did she promote she, women's writing? Did she did she take that platform and do something with she
3: it? She did. She she promoted w- women's writing, but she also made vast pronouncements about what fiction was, where it was up to, what it was doing. So one famous one about um, contemporary fiction uh, took as its basis uh, Renata Adler's Speedboat and kind of took that as you know a jumping-off point to make all of these. Uh, statements about what contemporary fiction was and should be and how it should challenge the form and, you know, it shouldn't be, um, you know, it shouldn't try to emulate writers who had gone before, it should it should take, it doesn't have to have plot, it just needs to have strength of character and voice and all of these things which she then put into practice in her own writing, whether fiction or non-fiction. And, you know, with Hardwick, the terms fiction and, and nonfiction, are sort of... Yeah, they don't really stick anyway because they do bleed into each other, and that's not to say anything as trite as life is art and art is life, but more to say that one is a tool that can be used to excavate the other.
2: We need more of that sort of writing in the paper. I'm always struck that you can always review a book too much. I feel that yeah, you know, it, it, you know that's not just a review of a book. She's then said, taken that to then say something else, mm. uh, and there's probably not enough of that now, is there?
3: No, I mean it's it's that sense of. I don't really care about the plot. I want to no. know how it feels and how it will yeah. make me feel and what it does.
2: Or what its context is or what or it what says its context about context is? Yeah. Why is
3: it important? Yeah. Why should anyone, out of all the books that are published, why should anyone read this? And Hardwick, at her best, is actually, I think, a reviewer. If we flip the page in this week's paper, there's um, a piece by Louis Amos of Cynthia Ozick, and she uh, was very condescending of, of reviews. She didn't really think reviews were very important, but... You know, to that, all you have to do is say, hello, Elizabeth Hardwick. I mean, she, she would take a review, uh, you know, here, review this life of uh, Edmund Wilson or whoever. And she would use that as, as a reason to really dig in and think about what matters uh, when you're writing a life or a novel or anything, really.
2: And when did you get into her? Because talking to you now, you clearly have been utterly immersed in, in, <laughs> in her stuff. Yeah. Well, when did that happen and why did that happen?
3: Uh, I think at university, actually. And I, don't, I can't remember exactly what the path was, but it went probably went something like Wolf, something else, something else, Elizabeth Hardwick. Really? She wrote an essay, in fact, about Wolf. She wrote a very funny um, essay about the Bloomsbury set, which she basically... I can't remember the line and I'm so sorry. She said something like, you know, if I have to hear another name uh, another line about Adeline at the table in the corner sitting blah 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 um, I'll scream. So I think that's probably how I got to her.
2: And if people haven't heard of her and you can tell one book to go and read would you say finally go and read these new collected essays or would you say go and read Seduction and Betrayal or would you say go read a novel first what would you say you've got one one title.
3: I would say start with Seduction and Betrayal actually because that was the book that most excited me. And it's flawed. I mean, that's the great thing about Hardwick is that she's absolutely brilliant, but there, are, there's always room to pick up on a little flaw, and and it's not necessarily a flaw in the way that she did it, but it's something to disagree with. Yeah. she's like your brilliant friend who you know sits there, and I think Joan Didion said this actually about her. Uh, you know, they're the the quick pronouncements of the kitchen. Uh, she's your brilliant friend who sits there and sometimes says stuff, and it sounds brilliant, and then if you think about it later, you're like, well. Yeah, I mean, that's a bit much, but OK. And, yeah. But you're with her and yeah. it's exciting and she's making you feel and react.
2: Well, what better recommendation uh, can there be than that? Thea Lenaduzzi!
3: <laughs> Thank <laughs> yeah. you very much indeed. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Most of the women who have ever lived left no trace of their existence on the record of history. So says Susanna Lipscomb at the beginning of a new essay in which she tries to uncover traces in the records of the Protestant consistory courts of 16th century France. Their crimes of immorality were tried and punished using a sort of naming and shaming approach. And surprisingly, women appeared regularly in such a forum, what with their historical responsibility for all sexual impropriety and all that. A simple equation resulted, which has been multiplied ever since. Controlling morals meant controlling women. But unintentionally, consistory courts also became a place where women's voices at least had to be heard, even as a forerunner of modern-day self-protecting whisper networks. Lipscomb notes that women quickly learnt how to use the consistory. They denounced those who abused them. They deployed the consistory to force men to honour marriage promises. And they started rumours they knew would be followed up by the elders. She tells the rather sad story of Magdalene Sermiere, a source of consternation to the community, not only because she had the temerity to attend mass and to dance, but more seriously because she wouldn't marry her fiancé. She did not wish to submit because he was a beater, a man violently unsettled because his putative wife did not fear him. Magdalene didn't seem to fear the court either, as she was willing to apologise for her faith and her treacherously dancing feet, but not her sense of independence." Whether or not the story ended happily, alas, we cannot say. But Susanna, who's writing a book based on these court papers, can tell us more. She joins Thea and me now. Susanna, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Tell us about these courts, these consistory courts. What were them? What was their historical context?
4: Okay. so the context is 16th century France, where about when the 1550s and 1560s, particularly people across the kind of swathe of the south of France, particularly um, converted to Protestantism, Calvinism, Huguenotism, whatever, all these words interchangeable. Although subsequently, especially after the Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre, many people who had converted, for example, in Toulouse, uh, apostatized and became Catholic again. In certain towns like Nîmes on and certain villages in the Cévennes, people stayed convinced of their Protestant faith. And where they were the majority in a town, these consistory courts, if court is quite, not quite the right word, but it's the closest we've got, um were established by the church in order to police morality. So they would set up in Imnim, for example, um, they set up uh, between 17 and 18 men met more than once a week, um, and they examined every uh, bit of gossip, every um, rumor, every suggestion of impropriety. And they policed a number of streets um, and then would report all this back and then call in the offenders.
2: And do you think that because they were Protestants in a a predominantly Catholic country in the middle of the wars of religion, they became more zealous because they were almost an endangered species, so that the issue of this type of enforcement became more important to them?
4: Yes, absolutely for that reason. I mean, some of the time when this is happening, they are literally surrounded by catholic forces (laughs) so you know if you're a protestant going outside a city like Nîmes, you could actually die but also there is a, a mental attitude which suggests that if they can only achieve a pure city if they can only um, adhere to a strict moral co- code, then they will please God, they will save themselves from his wrath, and this moral policing will bring them safety and victory in the war. So there's an extra sort of added reason to do it. In that sense there then,
3: and different to the contemporary criminal courts, it's kind of based on a confessional process, isn't it?
4: Yes, they have a, or, or, what seems to us a sort of fairly naive um expectation that if they ask them to tell the truth (laughs) that people will tell the truth and if faced with a difficult situation you know he said she said they put the two people opposite each other and think well surely we're going to get the truth this way but the thing is of course actually people do confess one of the interesting things about it of course is the extent to which Some people in the community really are internalising the church's standards, and that's why they're denouncing other people. Um, Some people come and confess and bring themselves to the consistory to say, I've done this thing wrong. Um, And what's also interesting is that the way that they are punished is through this series of shaming punishments. Either you have to kneel down before the consistory and say, "I've, I've done this wrong, or you have to kneel down before the whole congregation on a Sunday
2: was and that, admit your fault. Was that really that bad? You know, this is a sort of time where people, you know, had their ears nailed to things, and 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 such like. Uh, having to kneel down and say you did something doesn't feel terribly bad. But was it regarded as as something horrific?
4: Yeah. So, two things to say to that. One is. It was bad. If you think about the way in which people have been shamed in recent years, you know, there have been incidents of people um, being shamed because of their sexuality on social media and things like that. This is the early modern equivalent. So shame is much, much more um, terrible an experience to go through than I think we realise. Um, and being shamed in front of your whole community for something that the whole community thinks is shameful is is really sort of psychologically scarring um, and in, in in fact one of the punishments that the uh, s- criminal and civic authorities use at this time is precisely this same shaming thing um, where you, you have to kneel down in front of people holding a torch in your hand it's called the amand honorable and in fact it, it, it's um, before you know the famous uh, attempted assassin Damien is brutally executed he has to do this but also there's a second thing, which is that actually there is a very close link between what's happening in the church and what's happening in the town. So I've seen last summer I was looking um, at two things. One at the town council records in Nîmes, where I could establish that of those on the town council, 48% of them were also serving as elders on the consistory. And of the consuls, so those who really run the town, ta- the, the, in charge of the town, 65% of them are also elders. So there's a total overlap. So
2: this um, is a theocracy. And,
4: yes, it's a theocracy. And in Montauban, there's an amazing survival of, of criminal registers between 1534 and 1616. And looking at those, we see people who are being both punished or, uh, by the consistory and being punished by the consuls. So they're working hand in hand in glove. Um, and so just because you just had a shaming punishment in one place didn't mean you did, You got away with something else um, in front of the, the town authorities.
2: Um, these would at one blush seem to look at be a sort of system that would oppress women uh, because it's generally blokes uh, who are sort of slightly appalled by the notion of women doing anything. It strikes me. But do you, do you feel that they became subverted at least by women to a certain extent?
4: Yeah, so the first thing absolutely they are designed this is a patriarchy um these are designed to control women who are as you said uh, responsible for sexual sin it's absolutely thought to be really squarely in the woman's camp barring the fact that you obviously need two people uh so there's it's very much um it's very much aimed at controlling women and but what's so extraordinary about it is what is that it reveals precisely um how women both using the consistory and using other strategies and devices available to them try nevertheless to resist what is being imposed on them they they start to use the consistory for their own ends they start to use the court of public opinion for their own ends and um So the the, the irony is it reveals to us uh, something that not many sources have revealed, which is this extraordinary, vocal, persuasive, bold power that women have. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is because up until now, we've talked about the fact that, oh, yes, women in the past in these oppressed societies, but they had a kind of silent, devious sort of power. You know, there's that line from My Big Fat Great Wedding, which says, you know, the man is the head of the family, but the woman is the neck. You know, she turns him whichever way she wants. (laughs) But actually what I'm seeing is it's not just that we actually in this society where women have no legal power they have no rights under law um you know they, they once they're married they can't really own anything all of that but they're still d- demonstrating absolute power um in, in their society to an extent much more than we thought I think so tell us then about the story
3: of Magdalene because that's that's representative really
4: Yes. So Magdalene is a woman who wants to marry after her own heart or, or not marry in this case. And this is interesting because at the time, most women saw marriage, we would have thought, as the sort of ultimate um, horizon, because for them, marriage would be the key to uh, Having um, a happy life um, and being able to establish a kind of economic situation which they could work, um, all of this sort of stuff. But what is extraordinary about Madeleine is that she is someone who decides to go against this point of view, and she does so on the basis of what she considers to be a justified reason. She's called up because she has been accused of dancing and idolatry, attending the Mass, but she is told that she has to marry her uh, fiance and she just sort of doesn't respond she keeps not responding and doing what she's told to do when they say you've got to submit to our authority you know the censure of the church she says oh, I, I don't really know what i'd be submitting myself to so she's she's being she's being um bullshy right um and then eventually she turns up and says okay she'll do what they tell her to do but As far as this man that she's supposed to marry is concerned, she doesn't want to marry him um, and she's not going to because God doesn't want it, which is um, which is an amazing um, attempt to try and use (laughs)
2: the
4: the power that the consistory very much. It's an unprovable argument, isn't it?
2: Yeah. (laughs) You can't prove it wrong, can you, I suppose?
4: (laughs) Exactly. Although the consistory, you know, seem to think that they've got the kind of edge when it comes to hearing God's voice. Yeah. Um, and uh, they say they say this is blasphemy. And they suspend her um, from the Eucharist, which is the kind of central uh, participatory rite of this church. And uh, they call say that she has a rebellious heart. But she never um, in the sources that we have agrees to marry him. She keeps saying no. And then. Unfortunately, that the, the you know the we don't have any. So what happened to her? What thing.
2: happened? What happened to her? Because if if you're if you're effectively is this excommunicated more or less? Um, if that's what yeah yeah. To her? I
4: mean, well, so, so so she's not old, So it's she isn't. Uh, she's suspended, which is kind of the stage before excommunication. It's like it's not. Excommunication is a permanent suspension, but it's the effectively because she is not. If you're um, suspended from the Eucharist, you're not supposed to have social and economic interchange with the faithful. So it, you know, it's a ma- it's a massive deal. So what um, would, so
2: what would have happened to her? She'd be shunned. She'd be. I mean, is is this is this story likely to have ended happily or not? Not. It, I suspect. it's
4: it. not likely to have ended <laughs> happily. We don't know. <laughs> I mean, she, maybe she moved somewhere else in search of work. I don't know what happened to her because the this is that these women um, appear on stage, as it were, um, dance before me, and then the, then the records fall silent and off they go off stage, and I have no idea what happens. Um, but as as you said in the introduction, that she has some really good reasons not to marry him because he's someone who has been beating her and it's completely justifiable. But I do have an instance in case... Well, this is it's quite a sad story, but I do have an instance to answer the question of what happens to these women when they don't do what they're told. Yeah. There's a woman called Catherine Formantine who in 1579 in Nîmes is told that she has to marry this man called Captain Serre. She says she doesn't want to marry him. She wants to marry a man called Verdier, and the consistory say, no, you've got to marry the man your father says you're going to marry. So she is uh, suspended from the sacrament like Magdalene. Years pass, and she turns up three times to say she wants to be readmitted to the church. And they say, you're going to do what we say? And she says, no. And they say, nope. off we off with you. And eventually it turns out that the man that she wants to marry is a Catholic. And so she says, well, if he had been a Protestant, I would have wanted to marry no other man but him. But as he as he's not, I'm not going to marry either one of them. But what's really interesting about this, and this is this is not a this is not a happy ending.
2: Oh God! yeah! I, mean, I was I was this was starting to go so well. I thought, great!
4: I know, I know, I know. She's being. Re- I mean, it's sort of so determined and bold. Well, you can judge it as you see. But, yeah, come on, out, but out with it! Come on. A few years later, she appears in the records uh, because a young girl in the suburbs has said that she is pregnant by this man called Clauson, who's this uh, terrible womanizer and uh, leading man in the town, and says that Catherine Formantine was the reason she'd fallen into such misfortune. A few years after that, another girl called Marie said that she had been Catherine's servant for three years and was persuaded by Catherine to abandon herself to sexual sin. These are, I'm quoting there uh, with three men and that she'd seen another girl come to Catherine's house to um, have sex with somebody. Basically, in other words, Catherine set up a brothel. There are attempts later by 1613 to try and exile her from the town because of the, her involvement in.
2: But she the, presumably had no choice because yeah. she had to make money however she could.
4: Yes, there was no other way for her to make money. This is precisely it. She's it's an entrepreneur.
2: Way.
4: She's an entrepreneur, yeah. As it so happens, she's, she sees a need <laughs> and she sets up an industry.
2: It shows the power that the, this community had. Uh, Susanna, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing those stories. Uh, with us. When's, when's the book out with all these stories contained in them?
4: Oh, I should think, unfortunately, in about a year's time or so. It's just going into the publisher at the moment. uh, uh, Have you finished it? Uh, Not quite, yes. It's due at the end of this month.
2: Okay, you better go back to finishing it. Susanna Susanna Lipscomb, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. There's There's a great piece of linguistic... Uh, information in this piece, which I like, a surviving register of criminal sentences for Montauban shows cases of paillardise, oh. fornication in from the, the French paie for hay, is yeah. in rolling, in the, rolling hay. in the hay. Isn't that nice? That's a universal <laughs> metaphor for sex. <laughs> it's lovely. I find that sort of thing really, really neat.
0: So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
3: Publishing a volume of verse, the author and humorist Don Marquis lamented, is like dropping a rose petal down the Grand Canyon and waiting for the echo. For years, publishing a poetry pamphlet, the volume's slighter, nimbler sister, seemed as futile. Those sensing a butt in that opener from Leif Arbuthnot's majestic summary of recent poetry pamphlets will not be disappointed. Publishing poetry pamphlets is decidedly no longer futile, nor was it ever, of course, because while it may not indeed never has translated to dizzying mountains of wealth, the form does have a history of launching the careers of some of our greatest poets. Before Seamus Heaney's Death of a Naturalist in 1966, for example, was a slim little thing called simply Eleven Poems. Poetry pamphlets are in that sense brought to us from the coalface of talent, new and established, and we give them due recognition in this week's TLS, just a matter of days before the winners of the Michael Marks Awards for Poetry Pamphlets in association with the TLS, the Wordsworth Trust and Harvard, Harvard University are announced. Leif Arbuthnot, a regular to our pages and one of this year's judges for the prizes, joins us in the studio now to tell us what do those rose petals sound like and smell like when they land. <laughs> Hello, Leaf. <laughs> Hello. What an introduction. Well, I know. I mean, I think you're going to have to kick things off <laughs> by telling us what a poetry pamphlet is and why I'm talking about smell.
1: Oh yes, uh, so typically a poetry pamphlet I just thought you'd
2: gone mad exactly.
1: I, thought, I thought I needed to make sure someone cleared that up. Um, yeah. No, I will clear both of these things up So poetry pamphlets tend to be uh, quite short collections of poetry so if we're talking um, usually around um, it can be anything from sort of three pages to about 36 pages, the Michael Marks Awards um, which, which kind of recognises uh, poetry pamphlets that they stipulate that they have to be under 36 pages um, which just means that they've got to be pretty short and pretty, pretty light. But Apart from that, uh, that the pamphlet kind of format is pretty broad. So we were talking about smell. One of the pamphlets that um, I was looking at earlier this year, or this autumn, in fact, um, was an extraordinary um, sort of box. Um, it was, it's called Five Charms for the Pottinger by Rebecca Sharp. And it, it's, it's sort of... It's, so it's this black box and there's a ribbon on the outside. You have to take the ribbon off. And then inside are five tiny little bottles of essential oils. Um, and each of the bottles of essential oils... Corresponds with a different poem in in the in the box as well in another sort of envelope. So and um, the idea is that you kind of open the essential oil and you sniff it when you are reading the poem, so that so that there's and a kind like of. you like that? Is that good? Does, I mean, yeah,
2: does do you sit work? there and go gimmick gimmick? Um,
1: i I, I can think this
2: going <laughs> yeah. gimmicky, gimmicky.
1: Um, yeah, I think that the poetry in this case wasn't wasn't that good it was it was quite good, but it you know it wasn't it wasn't memorable, so I did think gimmick gimmick, but I also thought, ah, oh, this is fun, you know, oh. I would love to receive this as a present and and it was it was hard it was so charming and so completely memorable and unexpected that i you know i, I just i I was won over in the end even if even if as a poetry critic. I wasn't that convinced. Um, I'd also, you know, I've been reading so so many pamphlets that this one kind of s- stood out. Yeah, it's nice and, of um. w- w-
3: What it does get to in doing that, though, is is to kind of show us the extent to which all of this is the pamphlet form is a, as you put it, a, a laboratory for experiment absolutely
1: yeah and, and you know that the little bottles and you know, actually look like lab lab things anyway so um yeah and, and that's not the only kind of innovative uh, amongst all of these pamphlets that i was looking at there were other things which were which were really kind of pushing at the boundaries of what we envisage when the word pamphlet is used so there was one which is uh, the kind of main photo in, in the piece of this this strange little pamphlet i suppose called wave Motion, and you sort Sort of hold it, and then the poems. There are two sort of sonnets. They sort of cascade out, um, and it and it's it's a bit like a kind of maybe a uh, an, you know one of these arty books you might p- pick up in a very hip. Um, shop in Shoreditch, but but the poetry in this case was really excellent about um, you know rubbish in the sea and how you know standing in water in in modern seawater is no longer quite as kind of beautiful as it used to be because you have flakes of plastic that are kind of wrapping themselves around your legs um, so it's not all it's not all gimmicks um, and and actually obviously the vast majority of the of the pamphlets that that I, I've been reading recently are very, you know, recognisably book like They are. They have either staples or they're properly bound. If they're, you know, from a really posh publisher that, that that's kind of putting a bit more money behind these things.
2: Has the the role of the pamphlet sort of trying things out, testing things out? How has that not been taken by the internet, or has it been taken by the internet, where people can write something, push it out there with minimal expense, no overheads, and do that that testing process? Without the need to get into into publication at all,
1: I would say that that there's that there's room for both, and that both are doing that. So um, in pamphlets, you've got some people who are you know internet or, or they're sort of young people. They're known through their for their slam poetry, for instance, Jamal Mahmoud, who's a slam poet and who probably you know he he he's known via those like social media as yeah. well. Um, so people like that are, are kind of um, taking their internet. Um, you know no- notoriety or, or something more positive their fame on the internet and then and then kind of in- investigating a more you know a print the print form um so i i think that um there's no need to kind of choose and say like oh well pamphlets are now irrelevant because we've got blogs um i think that there's it room for validate
2: it more. i always wonder with these things that that there's something about Something becoming re- physical yeah. rather than electronic. It feels it lends a certain validation. Yeah, I think to that's Is right. That still true? Is that just? For, I'm. I'm very. I'm an old fuddy-duddy now. At the <laughs> no, end of day seven.
1: I think you're right. I mean, I've I've noticed that the sort of excitement with which. Um, you know particularly young poets um, greet that the first publication of their of their pamphlets it's and and as they should because it's so different from uploading something onto your website and not really knowing who's reading it whether it's being appreciated okay you can have a comment section where your mum will say that she loves your poems but but there's there is something um, that taps into I think something quite deep in us when, when you're holding um, a physical you know manifestation of, of your inward like creation um, which is which is not the same as, as you know, scrolling on on your screen, um, but I'm but I, I'm really I'm anti poetry snobbery. I think that um, some people don't like to read poems on the internet or on their screens. Some people do, and um, it, it's it's annoying when people say, "Oh, we should only ever read poems by the fireside," you know, yeah. um, in, in comfortable socks and with a pipe. Um, so Although that is nice as well. That is lovely. I'm not going <laughs> to slam that. <laughs>
3: the virtue of the pamphlet has always been. Really, it's cheapness to produce. Yeah. That's that's part of what's made it so so vital. So do you get do you get the feeling? Because I know that the Michael Marks, and I should say I've I've judged the Michael Marks mm. before, so I know that they're I know sort of what it entails, yeah. um, and I know that you see every year the same publishers. Mm. Um, again and again uh, you know Carcanay Mariscat Flair Sacks do you you get the sense that it is a really vital area of publishing now are there new people coming to the table and saying we want to publish this yeah I would say
1: so I mean you know I was struck by well, firstly, the fact that um, there, there were some publishers there that I'd never heard of. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying I know everything about poetry publishers, but, you know, there were one or two that I was like, oh, gosh, um, you know, this, this is a fantastic that they really discovered this amazing poet. And I'm so grateful for their work. Um, there were also some self-published pamphlets, which I thought some of them were real, you know, were not good good you know poems and clearly they'd they'd maybe try to find um a, a publisher and hadn't found one for, for maybe a, a good reason but but a lot of it was was well not a lot of it but quite a few were self-published so um I'd say that it's still definitely um you know uh, uh, it still provides an opportunity for for writers who haven't found kind of success during, through the normal you know uh, kind of paths um to, to to kind of reach an audience or a, and a readership um, but I think also something about the fact that, that the poetry pamphlet is quite cheap um, means that it, it's slightly more welcoming. It's less it's less of an intimidating first step. You can you, you get poets who are writing pamphlets who have an enormous talent, but they're, they're not necessarily you know that well known. They haven't they haven't got their poems into Rialto and Ambit and, you know, they're all like, you know, lots of other kind of amazing um, poetry sort of platforms. Um, and so. I think that it's it's a good sort of yeah first step, but that that's all that sounds a little condescending because I think also that the pamphlet itself is is often so much more exciting than than a collection which can feel doughy and like oh I've got like you know fifty more pages of poetry to read. These are buzzy and they're they're often kind of like a bit of a slap in the face if if that's what the sort of content is like. Um, they they're really particularly good. At, Carrying one sort of experience forward or one you know maybe um a narration about illness, or so for instance, we've got um Par- the Parkinson's poems by Frank Ormsby, which was a a beautiful. Very short pamphlet about his experience having Parkinson's, having been diagnosed in 2011, um, and, and you know the poems are literally just about the you know what it's like to be diagnosed with with Parkinson's and feel your body degenerating, and it's really moving. Um, and then some other some other kind of um, pamphlets as well that 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 similarly just basically focus on one thing, um, and 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 they do it beautifully and you know and kind of succinctly. So who
2: else is good? I mean, it's good because you've, yeah. you've read an inordinate amount. of <laughs> Uh, uh, well, yeah. 130
3: submissions. We should
2: more say than, so, yeah. more than, yeah,
1: more than 130. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's actually
2: a really good test. This yeah. what, when you're reading a lot of poetry. <laughs> yeah. What lingers in your mind? What, um, what gets the hooks in? Yeah.
1: Well, um, I think that the, probably the uh, the one that made me cry, um, which I think is actually a, fa- a decent measure of like the skill of a so. poet, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, was was a, a wonderful pamphlet called Career and Accompaniment um, by Alex Reid. Um, and this was a, he's really not a well-known poet at all. So I, I you know, I wasn't not that I, I build up expectations, but it did slightly take me by surprise. And this was, um, I'm afraid, a sort of a weepy a pamphlet about the experience of caring for his dying wife um and you know looking casting ahead while she was still ill into their future which was basically which had been completely altered by by the, by the present illness and then um you know a few poems about about um, what it was like afterwards, um, and and it was it was such restrained poetry. Um, you know, n- none of that kind of splashy. Um, you know, all caps, all bold, all italics. Sadness. It was. It was just very, very, um, yeah, moving. Um, so, so that was probably my my you know one of my standouts. Do you um, like
2: restraint in in poetry? Is is that something that, that that you look for? Because it's easy to, particularly when you read a right range, I suppose, of modern poetry. It's easy mm. to see lots of. Tricks in it that can I don't know maybe it's just me that can be a bit off-putting. Do you, do you like yeah. to hear a natural voice in, um, in I, a poem?
1: I, it's interesting. Um, so I I think that that restraint I I generally like though I you know I I, have a, I like a very diet in my poetry. Sometimes I I want luscious you know really um, you know flowery poetry occasionally. But, but what I really don't like is 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 well not always but I but I often find that poetry that's extremely Cold and brittle, and and maybe so disjointed that it that it looks like you know sort of random bits of words on the on a page. Th- that sort of poetry really tests my patience, and I know it's fashionable, and I know I sound like a sort of old fuddy-duddy for for sort of not thinking that that poetry is good, but um, I often think of my mum who is, um, you know, she's well-read, but she's not a massive poetry fan. And I know that, you know, if I gave her one of these very modern poems that looks like sort of splintered glass, she would say, oh, God, how pretentious. Um, And so she sort of lingers in my mind like a sort of gremlin. It should tell Um, a story then. Yeah, it should, it should. And and it should, um, I think if you're... If you're not sort of informing, um, for instance, you know uh, uh, there are some poems which are which are excellent uh, or, or collections which are wonderful at kind of g- giving a sense of a community. Say, for instance, there's this, um, the Swansea love song, um, uh, which which was wonderful. Um,
3: I think I'm going to make you read that out. Oh my gosh! Okay, we'll
1: yeah. do. Um, I will, I'll do <laughs> what, what oh, I
3: can.
2: Go on. Where's the Swansea love song? This is the um,
3: Stephen Knight. Uh, yeah,
1: pamphlet. Yeah, it was pretty extraordinary. Um, but but that kind of gives you that that. Well, um, we'll talk about it. But um, go
2: on, read, read, it, read
1: it out. Read okay, it out. so <laughs> well, so so just just for, for to kind of bracket what I'm what I'm about to read. Um, uh, Stephen yes, Knight has it, yeah. this has a pamphlet. Do you do a um, Welsh accent? Uh, I really really don't. <laughs> okay. C glonn screech in a said dorf like Bonnie Tyler.
3: <laughs> and the translation of that is um, in English. Okay,
1: Siegel on the prom, screeching his head off like Bonnie Tyler.
3: Now so this- I would
1: say that this doesn't suit podcasting because the whole joy of, of this pamphlet is to see these these completely nonsensical letters in combination, yeah. and then you read it aloud, and then you kind of get closer to the meaning. So actually, me reading it aloud straight away doesn't, you know, it's not as funny. I mm-hmm. mean, obviously, because because you don't it's have quite that funny, kind actually.
2: of. I, I, I found the way it became Scottish. <laughs> About halfway through oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. to be uh, well,
3: I am uh, the, now blushing. The, <laughs> re- listen, readers, listeners, i blushing at me. The <laughs> cruel, but essential point of that was to show that it so much of these these pamphlets are about linguistic play and about um, yeah translation between, between from one language to the other uh, to another a lot of the pamphlets are about dialect and yeah. playing with that there was and yeah identities aren't they? There was a very
1: very good um, pamphlet by Yvonne Reddick and this pamphlet has won lots of you know kind of, has got lots of attention already called Translating Mountains which was about um, the disappearance and then death of her father who died in the Highlands um, and, and she kind of she tries to kind of include lots of Gaelic in her poems and and partly that sort of does go some way into um capturing her sense of alienation dislocation and and just you know loss um following the death of of her dad and I thought that those poems worked really well and and there's there was a wonderful poem about how she's uh, yes she was she's lost um when trying to use Gaelic words but she's just as lost when she's in London, trying to negotiate Arnold's Grove and Gospel Oak, um, and that kind of disorientation she feels in the city, which is of course a universal theme. Um, you know, very modern, um, but 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 beautifully handled by um, by her.
2: Uh, we've got to leave it there, but I want to just uh, to finish with a quote that you you give. Uh oliver jones's collection which i think is called chronic youth is that right advice is the poem and you say it has four sparkling lines of guidance that are begging to be memorized so here they are if you can sleep sleep immediately and deliciously with all your clothes on
1: (laughs) yep it's great advice poetry you can use (laughs) exactly Get it tattooed onto your hand.
2: Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, we we we
3: we do have to end it there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sadly, go for a kit. and we yeah. can't. We exactly all of us with our <laughs> clothes on. Um, we can't end by asking you to pick your favourite because that would Ooh. that would kill the suspense. Uh, everyone has to wait until the twelfth of December and then we'll yes. find out who has won. So thank you very much, Lee, for joining us. My and pleasure. The Michael Marks Awards for the best pamphlet publisher and illustration. So that's three awards. Uh, will be announced on the 12th of December at the British Library.
2: And that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Leif Arbuthnot and Susanna Lipscomb. My thanks go to feudal landlady Thea Lenaduzzi. Do go to the-tls.co.uk or your local shop for this week's edition of the TLS, which has lots on Renaissance literature, plus stuff on Bob Dylan, trees and samurais. You won't get all that in the (laughs) NYRB. Next week, we may turn our minds to Darwin and the Reformation, or we may turn our minds to something else entirely. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye.